Turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going back to that. We uh, have been looking at the first chapter uh, earlier, and we're turning now to chapter 2. <clears throat> I appreciate the fact that the pastoral prayer included uh, some statements that were from Philippians chapter 2 earlier. And those very references are going to be the subject of our study today and also next week. Um, I know in your bulletin it says that uh, Reverend Ford Williams is preaching next Sunday, but that will not be the case. Uh, Ford and Martha both have uh, health issues, and I think basically their family was saying, you don't need to travel. And I certainly understand that. Uh, and he hated not being able to come, but he really felt like that was the right thing to do. So uh, you're stuck with me next week, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning, and then verses 5 through 11 next Sunday, Lord willing. All of that basically uh, is a unit, but there's too much there for us to cover today, so we're just going to look at the first four verses. So follow with me as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the Apostle Paul certainly knew what it was like to face opposition because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. He was, after all, writing to this church in Philippi out of uh, an imprisonment situation in the city of Rome. He was under house arrest, and he didn't know if he would ever be able to be free again. He would, but he didn't know it at the time. And so uh, he told the Philippians at the end of chapter 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago, verses 27 through 30, to see how God would want them to be a faithful witness to those around them those in the world. Just as Paul had said he was uh, letting the gospel be known to the whole uh, Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard uh, that were near him during his imprisonment. And he instructed them in those verses at the end of chapter 1 on how to live out your faith. There's certainly a lot that the Bible tells us about that, but Paul expresses it there very clearly when he tells them that they are to live out the gospel. And he wants them to, to be faithful in their lives uh, as the gospel grips their lives and impacts everything about them. But now... Paul sort of changes the emphasis as we begin chapter 2, and now he's going to focus on how they are to live out the gospel and their relationship to one another in the church. 
And one of the reasons he was doing that was because there were some problems in that church. It, it was a strong church, a good church, a, a fruitful church, but no church is without its weaknesses. And the Apostle points out, you are not all living in the united fashion that you should. There are disagreements among you that are causing uh, some rifts in the congregation. And you're not living out the unity that you have in Jesus Christ. And so he, he has here a, a diagnosis and a formula for how they need to do that. Verses 1 through 4 actually are one long sentence in the original Greek. So this is a, a really strong uh, section here that, that is tied together grammatically as well as in terms of its theme. And Paul here says, look, the way you can live in unity and harmony with one another is by being a lowlife. Now, I know that doesn't sound very attractive, does it? Usually when we refer to someone as a lowlife, we're not exactly praising them. But there's a Christian approach to being a lowlife, and what he means by that is being one who lives a lowly life of humble service to others. Christ will be the example of that, ultimate example of that which we'll see in verses 5 through 11 next Lord's Day. So notice here with me these three aspects, and we can only examine them briefly. But first of all, notice the prerequisites for a lowly life, a humble life. Prerequisites. You know, no one naturally has the ability to do what God says we need to do. And as Christians, we need to recognize that. It is our nature not to be humble. Our sinful nature is such that we want to put ourselves first, put ourselves ahead of others. The Christian life turns that upside down. Or if you want to put it another way, God turns our hearts inside out. He, he so changes us that he gives us hearts that care for others even more than ourselves. But sometimes we get away from that, and disunity is the result. So here's what Paul says. If you've experienced these four prerequisites, and notice he says if for each one of these four, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and uh, any com it says if four times. It doesn't come out in the, in the translation sometimes. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, in, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. Now, when he says if, he's not questioning whether they have experienced that or not. Sometimes we say if, we mean maybe, maybe not. But here what he's really saying is, because you have experienced these things. He's pointing out to them that this is their responsibility. You know, Paul could have said, look, I'm an apostle. I have authority over you. Now, I'm cracking the whip. You people need to shape up and love each other and be humble to each other. Well, there are some times in Paul's letters where he does talk like that where, because it was needed where he was writing. But in this case... Remember, this was a pretty healthy church. 
And he believes that these Christians have these qualities in them. And so he's saying, because you have these qualities in you, these prerequisites to living humbly and, and, and serving others more than yourselves, these things are there and they need to be the, the impetus for your living the way God wants you to live. And so they're pretty simple here. Uh, John Calvin says that there is an extraordinary tenderness in these words. He doesn't command, he appeals if you have these things. In other words, since you have these qualities, because you have these qualities, those four ifs, of course, are listed there. Grace produces spiritual qualities in us that serve as the basis, the prerequisites, if you will, for godly treatment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So think of yourself here as you see these. Do you have encouragement in Christ? If you come to faith in Christ, what greater encouragement that can be for you? I belong to Christ now. I've put my trust in Him. I'm His and He is mine, as we sing. And that is the greatest encouragement that we could ever have. That it is well with our souls. That we know if we were to die this very second, we would go to be with the Lord. There's no condemnation. Because we're in Christ, through faith in alone in Christ alone. What about comfort from love? God's love, I think, is what is being referred to here. If God, if you have come to realize that God loves you, the sinner, and he's demonstrated that love for you and that Christ, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and me. The love of God for us is just beyond being able to fathom, isn't it? To meditate on that, that's one of the most sweet and wonderful things you can do. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why do you know it? Because the Bible tells me so. And then he says, if any participation in the Spirit... You are being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you, working in you, the Spirit of Christ. And He is producing in you these wonderful graces, these beautiful attributes, like the fruit of the Spirit. And affection and sympathy. You have a heart for others. That, those terms are, are involving the depths of our being. From deep within you, you have a love for others that you never had on that level before. And it's, it's a reflection of the love that God has for you. So, in other words, if or because you have experienced the saving power of the gospel of Christ, and you have been transformed by His Spirit working in you, then you can and you should desire to follow the instructions below in these next couple of verses for how to live in grace towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, are these four ifs descriptive of me? Does my heart respond, yes, Lord, 
these things you have been doing in me, and it helps me to know that I am one of your children. Now, the second thing to notice here, not only the prerequisites, but the priorities. What are the priorities for a lowly life? Verse 2 tells us. Paul says, complete my joy. Having, all, having these four qualities, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy. That's actually the main verb of this whole four-verse sentence. Complete my joy. If you have, in other words, he's saying, since God has begun this good work in you, complete my joy by showing that work in you in the way you relate to one another in the church. This is the main verb then, complete my joy. Now that doesn't, Paul's not being selfish here. He's not being self-centered. Now he's not saying, now Philippians, I just want you to make me happy because that's what I care about most. I want to be happy. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it as a father in the faith to his children. You know how that is. <laughs> you know how that works. If you're a parent and your son, little son or daughter cleans up his room without even being asked. And he comes to you and sort of proudly says, Daddy, I cleaned up my room. How's that going to make Daddy feel? Well, he's going to be happy. He's going to be joyful because he's seeing a good sign of his child doing what he knows will please his father or mother. How much more true is that when we are able to please our spiritual leaders and ultimately our heavenly father? That's what Paul is joyful about. It's what John said in 3 John when he says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. And I can tell you as a pastor that that gives great joy. When I see someone in the church growing in grace and in honoring Christ in their lives, you know, I just, that just gives me great joy. Because I know God is at work in them and God is using them and blessing them and they're blessing others. That's what he's talking about here. Make me glad. Okay, all well and good, but how do you do that? How can fellow Christians make an apostle happy? <laughs> or in our case, how can we as fellow Christians make our spiritual leaders happy? You know, there are times when pastors and elders don't sleep very well at night because of believers in the church who aren't making them happy, who are causing disruptions in the church and not handling that in a biblical way. So the opposite can happen, but here the goal is to make your leaders happy and ultimately, of course, to please God. Well, he tells them what to do. You need to be of the same mind. And I guess a good word to go along that, that would make, make it a little clearer would be have the same mindset. And that doesn't mean that we all think exactly the same. You know how impossible that is. We can't even agree on sometimes on what team to root for or who to vote for when we are in an election time. But 
what he's saying here is that we all need to be in common agreement on the gospel and on the priorities of the gospel and the principles of living by the gospel. We need to be on the same page and using the same playbook, if I can put it that way. Yes, we're going to have secondary differences, and we need to, to treat one another with grace and charity and those things. You know, don't force your opinion on others. Be willing to have an open discussion, but we're going to have differences. Don't let that be the cause of disunity. Unite around the gospel. Unite around glorifying God. And then he says, having the same love. The same kind of love that Christ has for us, that kind of love should be practiced by us towards one another, shouldn't it? We just heard that from Colossians 3. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. And then being in full accord. That means more literally, being in soul harmony. That's just about literally what he says here. Soulmates. We're soulmates. We got all kind of backgrounds and, and, you know, all these differences that we have in other ways, but we are soulmates. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we care deeply for each other. And then he wraps it up. It's kind of like a, a bookend thing here. And of one mind. He started with that. He ends this little description, uh, set of descriptions here. Being of one mind. You know, the, the word mind is used ten times in Philippians. We all, all know about how joy is a theme of Philippians. But there's a connection here. Being in one accord, being in one, having the same mindset. It's a real key to unity. It underscores how important our attitudes towards ourselves must be. So the priorities are there. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. That's something we need to work towards and strive for. And then the third thing is the practices. We've seen the prerequisites, the priorities, now the practices of a lowly life in verses 3 and 4. You know, we need to keep in mind here that our practices, or if you will, our actions, are the fruits of our attitudes. Sometimes we can sort of hide our attitudes, but usually we don't do that very well. And if our attitudes are not what they ought to be, then it's going to negatively impact the way we live or our practices. And so he says in verse 3, to beware of selfish ambition and conceit. By the way, that terminology was used back in chapter 1, verse 17, when he talked about those preachers who preached the gospel, but their motives were not good. He says they preach out of selfish ambition. They proclaim Christ, but they do it out of selfish ambition. See, we can do that too. Not as preachers maybe, but we can do it in our, in our uh, practices, in the way that we relate to other people. 
We can even do good things on the surface, but it's all about us when it comes to our motives. We're doing it so we can be more highly esteemed, maybe, or receive the praise of others, or maybe get a leg up on being seen as more important than somebody else in the church. Competition. There's no place for competition in the church. And so he says we need, he's saying we need to, to avoid selfish ambition and conceit. John Calvin says these are two most dangerous pests for disturbing the peace of the church. Selfish ambition, conceit. Rather than that, we need to cultivate humility by counting others as more significant than ourselves, he says. Now, in a sense, we're all equally important to Christ. But the way we treat others should be a, a matter of deference, where we put the other person ahead of ourselves. We should have a lowly attitude towards ourselves so that we can minister and help others. Jesus had the same attitude. He said in Matthew 11 that I am gentle and lowly in heart. Later we'll see in Philippians 2 verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Andrew Murray is a South African pastor for many years, and he said this, it always struck me, he said, humility isn't so much thinking poorly of yourself as just not thinking of yourself at all. I call this the seesaw principle. Kids love seesaws. I guess they still have them. I, I see them in parks. They haven't replaced that with some high-tech deal. But in a seesaw, one person goes up and the other person goes down. And the higher one goes up, the lower the other one goes. Up and down. The seesaw principle for Christians is we need to take the lower spot in order to minister to the other, that they would be lifted up and we focus on them. Actions, he says here, will give consideration to the interest of others as well as oneself. Now notice he doesn't say, don't care about yourself at all. Just neglect yourself. God doesn't want us to do that. We have legitimate reasons to be concerned about taking care of ourselves and our families. But he says, don't just focus on that. Give consideration to others. Consider them as more significant than yourselves in terms of your practices. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Now, just as a word of application, what do you think of your fellow church members? All of them. To the extent that you know them. And, and that's another thing. You, you need to get to know your fellow church members. Not just the ones that you tend to gravitate towards. That's not wrong in itself. But 
Remember, there's other people in the church besides the ones that you're used to hanging out with. How do you see them? Do you look at some of them sort of down your nose? Do you think less of them because of some aspect of their lives? Do you neglect them when you could be serving them, showing love to them? And what about our marriages? Do you reflect in your marriage selflessness, humility? Honey, I know I can be wrong in this, and if I am, please show me. But here's what I see. You know, in our conversations, we can be deferential to them. We don't need to come across, you know, in that holier-than-thou approach. Genuine unity in our churches, which every church has room for improvement for, right? Including this one. Genuine unity in our churches can only come when grace-infused Christians live out that grace with their hearts turned inside out. Paul isn't finished with this, of course, as we'll see next week. It's a vital principle here of humble, other-focused mindsets that we should have. Jesus, before he was placed upon that cross, which we'll celebrate in a minute, Jesus with his disciples, after they had had that last supper, got up, took off his outer garments, took a basin of water, and washed the stinking, filthy feet of his disciples. And he said, I'm giving this as an example for you that you should love one another. And when he says love one another, he's saying humble service. You don't have to literally wash somebody's feet these days, more than likely. But you do need to have that humble servant's heart. And the more people you see who have that attitude, the greater the unity will be. Because we're all operating from the same instruction book, from the same heart. Pray that that would be so for you, your family, and for this congregation. Let's pray. Our Father, what a glorious and realistic set of instructions we have examined this morning for how we can see unity resolved. We know it, that unity doesn't come with just pleas for being nicer and, and uh, trusting in ourselves to make ourselves better or others to make themselves better. We know it has to flow out of a heart of love that reflects your love for us, where we will consider less of ourselves and more of others. Give us compassionate hearts. Give us the desire and the ability 
to love one another and rejoice together in the unity that we have in Christ, our common Savior and Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.